Well, our New Testament lesson this morning comes to us from Ephesians chapter 3, picking up in verse 14. Uh, The book, the epistle to the Ephesians, breaks down very uh, clearly into two halves. The first three chapters, the second three chapters, three and three. Um, Our thesis today is quite simple. You are beloved of God. God uh, loves you. Uh, Pretty basic uh, thesis. You're like, yeah, I've heard that one before, Pastor. Thank you very much. But Paul's burden in this text, his prayer is that we might know something that is unknowable. He reminds us that we can't fathom how much God has loved us in his son. And so this prayer and doxology uh, in, that we find today concludes this first half of Ephesians. He's praying that we could know God's love. Because if we could wrap our heads, begin to wrap our heads around that, it would change us And that's what the second half of the book is going to be about. Now, this is a three-part prayer, and I've, frankly, always gotten confused when I've read this prayer. I've never really understood it. I think our English translation isn't really that great. And so I'm going to depart from that. I don't often do this. So I encourage you to follow along in your Bible. My translation uh, is not my own, but it is one of uh, my old New Testament professor. Um, And I think it's very helpful for helping us see what's in our outline. That this prayer has really three petitions. And so if you glance in your bulletin at the outline, there will be three petitions. And I might even number them for you like this. So this is God's holy word for us today. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth receives its name. So... That he may grant you to be strengthened with power in accordance with the riches of his glory through his spirit in your inner man. So that Christ may take up his dwelling in your hearts through faith and that you may be rooted and founded in love. That you may be fully able to grasp with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and likewise to know The love of Christ that exceeds our understanding. And that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to accomplish far more exceedingly than anything we may request or imagine. In accordance with his power which is at work in us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Join me now uh, in our uh, prayer of illumination. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Please be seated. Well, we do have an outline uh, in our bulletin, and uh, this week, I hope in particular, will be useful for you. The first point is really, uh, for this reason, for what reason? Got to remember what Paul is arguing here, what he's talking about. And then second, I want to look at this prayer, which is a three-part prayer, um, and I I describe what those three petitions are. And finally, there is this beautiful doxological uh, praise conclusion to the uh, first half of this book. Well, I often get a soundtrack, a song stuck in my head as I prepare a sermon. And uh, 
I didn't come from a very cultured family. It was a big family, so we didn't go to see like a lot of stage shows or anything like that or concerts. But I remember this one time, I was maybe like Mary's age. I, we went to like a community college production of The Man of La Mancha. It's the story of uh, Don Quixote, uh, Cervantes. And um, I don't remember really anything about the show other than the song, which became a very popular song, to dream the impossible dream. I think it was Robert Goulet that sang that on Broadway. Um, I'm sure that the community college presentation was not Robert Goulet-esque, but um, it stuck in my head. Maybe some of you who are old enough can hear the, the notes. Uh, to dream the impossible dream, to fight the unbeatable foe, to bear with unbearable sorrow, to run where the brave dare not go, to right the unrightable wrong, to love pure and chaste from afar, to try when your arms are too weary to reach the unreachable star. I thought on that this week again and again and again because the apostle says, I pray that you can have strength, that the Spirit of God would work in your hearts, that you would know what's unknowable. To know the unknowable. It's a strange prayer. right? It's, it's like the, uh, the medieval teacher of the church, St. Anselm, Faith seeking understanding. You know there's something there. You're striving for it. You can't reach it. It's, it's not a quixotic quest. Because we, we know that God has made his love real in us. The King James Version tells us this is the love that passeth knowledge. The love that passeth knowledge. If you can really deep down... Believe and understand the love God has for you. The love that the eternal God of the universe, the maker of all things, has for not just people, not just stuff, creation, not just beauty or truth or goodness, but you in your birth, knitting you in the womb, loving you, that you are precious to him, that his love has motivated him to set aside all his glory for his son to come and die for us. God's love for you is beyond our understanding. But if you could begin, make a beginning at that. Oh, this would be such a a glorious thing to be a part of a church. It is a glorious thing to be a part where that knowledge comes to bear fruit. And it's the foundation of all we do. It's really the starting point of the Christian life. And that's why the Apostle Paul has laid this foundation in these three chapters. He wants to encourage and exhort uh, the Ephesians, but he doesn't want to just tell them what to do. This book isn't about instructions. This book is about the new creation, how they are new creatures. And that's coming to life right now. I don't know if you remember how I started this story. I, I told that story about the temple of artifice, artifice, Artemis of Ephesia. Massive, four times, eight times in volume, larger than... Then the Lincoln Memorial, this massive temple, just right down the street. And Paul is saying, forget about that temple. You're the temple. You're the most glorious temple. You're the ancient of, you're the the wonder of the ancient world, the modern world, of the whole cosmos. You're the wonder of God's grace and love. That's the burden here. That people might not be discouraged by the wealth and the riches of the pagan world in which they live, but that they might set their hearts on the love of Christ. So, let's see how Paul prays to this end in these closing verses. And my first point is is really to get at the reason, for this reason. 
Uh, again, it's always a little bit muddy how this first three chapters closes for me. But one of the things that helps clarify what Paul is doing here is if we find out what's motivating this. And we heard um, a really good presentation uh, by Luke last week that the first part of chapter 3 is a, discre- a digression. He starts in chapter 3, verse reason. He starts this prayer. He says, for this reason, I, Paul. And then he starts talking about something else. And then in in verse 14, he comes back and says again, for this reason. It's like he hits restart. And the natural question is, for what reason? It's not for the reason of what comes in the immediately preceding verses, because that's a digression. We have to go back to chapter 2, and in a sense, go back to chapter 1. But in particular, it's these verses, the close of chapter 2. And if you have your Bible open, I encourage you to turn there. Chapter 2, verse 19. This is him sort of concluding that opening argument. So then, you are no longer, he's talking to the Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. In the Lord, in Him, you also are being built together into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You are the temple. Forget about Artemis. Forget about Zeus. Forget about Dionysius. You are the temple. One of the things I want us to see here is that Paul is doing sort of the same thing he does in the book of Romans, but he's reversing his argument. In the book of Romans, he gets to the mystery of the gospel at the end about how the Jews and the Gentiles have come together into this beautiful, unified tree. He uses an organic image. But here, that's the foundation. He starts there. Paul in chapter 2 and 3 has been unfolding the great mystery of the gospel. What's the gospel? God chose Abraham and his family, a particular family, promised to make him a nation. And then he chose Israel, a particular nation. But did he choose these particular families and nations to save just particular subset of the cosmos of humanity? No. He chose them to save the world. He chose them to save the Gentiles. That was his plan all along. And in Acts chapter 9, when God called Paul, to faith, when he knocked him off the horse, what did he say? Actually, not, not God, but later to Ananias when he was given instructions. And this is repeated three times in the book of Acts. This is so important to the entire New Testament. The angel tells Ananias, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. What did Paul say at the end of verse 13 in chapter 3? Take a glance at the page. What did he say? My suffering is your glory. I'm suffering for you. God chose the chief of all sinners. A Pharisee. A Jewish hypocrite. And what does Jesus say on that road? Paul. Saul. Sorry. Saul. Why do you persecute me? Why is he the chief of all sinners? Because he persecuted Jesus. He wasn't there. We don't know. But he, 
He didn't drive the nails in the cross, but he probably feels like he's as close as he could be because he persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. When Stephen, the first martyr, was getting stoned, Paul was standing there holding the robes of people so they could really get a good wind-up throwing their rocks, you know. He was the coordinator of that persecution. He chose Paul to persecute the church, to be the greatest sinner of all time. And then he chose Paul to scatter the church. And then he transformed Paul to go to that scattered church, to go to the ends of the world and bring them the gospel. To explain to them how enraged Jews, which he once was, persecuting the church, was driving the gospel out into the whole world according to God's plan. Paul himself is a picture of the gospel. Only by persecuting the church could Paul see how wrong Judaism was in rejecting Jesus. Only by becoming the greatest sinner could he fathom God's grace for sinners because he received it first. Only then could he see that the Valley of Dry Bones was about him. The Valley of Dry Bones wasn't about those dirty, filthy people out there, but it was about Israel. As Paul says in Romans, so too they now have been disobedient, Israel, so they may also receive mercy shown to you, for the remnant will be saved by grace. God's always saving the remnant. You, brothers and sisters, let me apply this Jewish-Gentile thing, which probably means nothing to you, right? You, brothers and sisters, have been saved, so the world might be saved. You, brothers and sisters, have been saved that you, like Paul, might become a picture of the gospel. That God might show you how he works to save the world. That Israel's Messiah has died for Gentiles and now rules and reigns in heaven. So that's the reason for Paul's prayer. He's preaching to this overwhelmingly Gentile church telling them that they are the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of God and that God's glory is dwelling in them, even though he might be rotting in prison a couple months' journey away. And so that brings us to his prayer. He says, I bow my knees to the Father. It's just a word for prayer, a way, an expression, a physical expression. It doesn't mean we have to bow when we pray. It doesn't mean we have to kneel. And there are three parts to this prayer, and I've outlined them for you in our bulletin. First, that he may grant you to be strengthened so that Christ may take up his dwelling in your hearts that you may be rooted and founded in love. It's a, it's a complex idea, but all of these verbs work in parallel. You have to be strong in your hearts so the inner man might be renewed by the Spirit so Christ might dwell there and that is what makes you rooted and founded in love. And the second one is, once that founding in the love of Christ has been established, the second prayer, which follows from it, is that you might be able to grasp, that you might be able to know this unknowable love. And third and finally, the shortest, that you might be filled to all fullness of God. There are um, two ways to interpret this opening line, and you might notice that the translation I read differed from what the ESV has. I think it's preferable here. He says, I'm, I'm bowing my knees to the Father from whom the whole family on heaven and earth receives its name. Not every family. The word can mean both. 
He's referring to the family that he's referred to back in chapter 2, the household of God, which is now made up of Jews and Gentiles. And it's people on heaven and earth, because it's those who have gone before us in heaven and those who are on earth. This is the family of God. And we have been given God's name in our baptism. Paul's theme here is the united household. And again, it's this threefold prayer. I'm going to report it. God gives strength by faith. That's Christ dwelling in us, rooted and founded in love. Now, in the earlier part of this chapter, he's talked about what this faith does. It gives us confidence. It gives us boldness. We have access to the throne of grace. The one who's seated at the right hand of the Father is dwelling in us. What more access could we have? To empowered that we might grasp this love and then be filled. Now, this prayer is in keeping with what Paul introduced right at the beginning of the book. That God may enlighten, grant a spirit of revelation, that the immeasurable power of the greatness of God, that resurrection power, the power by which he rose Christ, might come to open the eyes and the hearts of the Ephesians. Do you see that our ignorance is one of the biggest obstacles of the gospel? We can't understand God's grace. He has to enlighten us. He has to reveal to us. We all think we know what we need. (laughs) We don't. We need to be humbled by the word of God. Let's unpack this first petition. God strengthens and empowers, Paul says, the inner man by giving his spirit. And through faith, Christ dwells in our hearts. Throughout uh, this passage, maybe it's obvious, but maybe it's not. In English, we can't tell the difference. But the you here is plural, right? So he's not talking about the individual you, Jesus dwells in your heart. He, He does, but the emphasis is always corporate. Jesus dwells in you, in your hearts. As he'll say in chapter 6, this is not a battle of flesh and blood. We don't need weapons. We don't need votes. We don't need to get the vote out for the next election. We don't need armies. We don't need bullets. This is a battle of spirit. And this is why in chapter 4, in the next chapter, he'll talk about putting off the old man and putting on the new man. It's the same expression that he refers to here. The new man comes to life through the spirit of God. And he's strengthened by faith. Yes, Jesus is in heaven. He has a human body. Jesus is not, doesn't fit in our hearts. But through his spirit, we can say he dwells there. We see here the relationship between Christ dwelling in our hearts and being rooted and founded in love. They're, they're stated here in parallel. In love, the Father predestined us for adoption through Christ, who is the beloved Son. That's what we heard in chapter 1. And it is because of the great love with which he loved us. What is rich in mercy through Christ. What will he say? We read it in our law passage today. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Brothers and sisters, if Christ and his sacrifice, if the cross is ever in your hearts... You will be a transformed person. Through the Spirit, by faith, Christ dwells in our hearts. And the Paul, the language Paul uses here is agricultural. Agricultural, you'll be rooted. And structural, you will be founded. There's a foundation. The love of Christ is the fertile soil from which the Christian life grows. The love of Christ is the solid foundation, is the cornerstone from which 
the life is built upward to maturity. This brings us to the second petition, quite naturally. Having Christ dwelling in our hearts, being rooted and founded in him, enables us to begin to comprehend, to hope, to strive for understanding, knowledge, what is fundamentally unknowable. And again, God has to strengthen us. God has to give us the power to know that. To know the unknowable love. Notice what Paul says here. It's it's interesting. You could skip it if you're not paying close attention. That you may be strengthened to grasp or to comprehend together with all the saints. The breadth and the length and the height and the depth. To know the love that surpasses knowledge. Why does he add... I ask you, together with all the saints. This is one of those points where I have in my notes pregnant pause. I really want you to try to answer this question. Why do we need to be together with all the saints to know the love of God in Christ? First, you might have some other answers, but here's a few of them to get us started. It's not revealed to just a special few. Together with all the saints we know. I hope and pray that each and every one of you who has ears and can understand the English language is going to go out from here with the same basic sense of what the love of God in Christ is. The preaching of the word is the common possession of the whole church. It's a universal possession. It's not a special vision. It's not something that if you fast and meditate and go out into the woods, if you do a silent retreat like uh, you know Aaron Rodgers trying to figure out whether or not to play for the Jets, maybe angels will speak to you, the love of God in Christ. No. It's together. It's what we proclaim. But I think more importantly, it's not something we can fully know in isolation. It is fundamentally corporate knowledge, and that gets back to Paul's argument. The grace, the glory of God in the church is the bringing together of two completely opposed things, Jews and Gentiles, people who hated each other. When he says, for this reason, the very construction of this temple, of this building, made out of all these crooked, bent rods and stones and limber, timber, that he builds a perfectly beautiful temple from us, is a picture of Christ's love. This is why, I told you I'd make an application to membership. Why we talk about membership. Because we know love by being loved by other members of the body of Christ. And we know love by loving other members of the body of Christ. And I would state it negatively. You cannot know the gospel alone in isolation. You cannot grow in faith and love Alone, in isolation. Your faith will wither alone, in isolation. For this reason, it is the picture of Jew and Gentile, sinner and saint, coming together through God's grace that presents, makes his love begin to be known among us. Not as it will be on that day of perfection and glory, but we begin to see it. And finally, you may be wondering about this expression, I hope you are. Breadth and length and height and depth. Breadth and length and height and depth. It's a great mystery. People look for where it comes from. They don't know what Paul is talking about. But I think, and the reason we read Ezekiel 43, is because this is the only place in ancient literature where these four words, breadth and length and height and depth, are combined in any sort of combination like this. In that description of the dimensions of the altar. 
These are the measurements of the altar by cubits, the cubit being a cubit and a handbreadth. Its base, that's the depth, shall be one cubit high, and this shall be the height of the altar. The altar shall be square, twelve cubits long by broad. These are these four dimensions. The unknowable love of Christ, incomprehensible. You can't imagine it, but here's a picture. Is metaphorically described as the altar at the heart of the eschatological temple. The place of offering, the place of atonement, the place where the animal bleeds for the removal of Israel's sin. Why such precision? You know, God gave, well, they're behind the thing, but the two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. But that's not all he gave. He also gave like 20 chapters of instructions on how to build a tabernacle. You know that part you all skip in Exodus. And then he spends the next 20 chapters, not quite, I'm rounding up, Going through the same instructions, saying that they actually did what they were told. That's very important. It doesn't happen very often in the Bible. And so we have almost the whole book, over half the book of Exodus, is the construction of the tabernacle. Why so much detail? Because it's, first of all, beautiful. And the numbers convey perfection. And they convey scale. And they convey glory and the richness of detail and materials, abundance and completion. It is perfect. And when that tabernacle is completed, the 20 pages of instructions being followed by 20 pages of properly followed instructions, like no IKEA furniture ever, you know, they actually built it like it was supposed to be built, then God's glory fills it. Then and only then can the holy God creator of the universe come and dwell with the sinful people. When he has a perfectly pure and pristine house to live in. That's why the unknowable love of Christ is known. In the depth and the height and the length and the breadth. It's the altar. It's the root and the foundation of the temple. It's why the tabernacle, why the temple exists. That we might know the love of Christ and his sacrifice. What does the Bible say? Little children memorize these texts. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We know his love. Not because we loved him first. But because he loved us. And sent his son to die for us. Behold the lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. That's the unknowable love of God in Christ. We are rooted and founded in the love of Christ. When we are rooted and founded in the cross of Christ. It's his death. It's the blood. It's the atoning death. This is why Paul says, I preach Christ and him crucified. That's what the first three chapters of Ephesians are. Which brings us to the third petition of the prayer. That you may be filled to all the fullness of God. What happened? What happened when Moses oversaw the only uh, construction project ever to finish on time? Right? What happened? It was like a freight train. It was like a hurricane. God came in all of his power and glory, the Shekinah glory. And Moses, the architect, Moses, the priest, Moses, the prophet, the king and leader of Israel, was driven out of that temple because it was filled with the glory of God. And then Solomon, David's greater son, builds a temple out of stone and gold and timbers, cedars of Lebanon. And when all the thing is filled and completed in great detail, in perfect dimensions, complete obedience, again, 
boom, the freight train comes. And on the day of Pentecost, we started to hear the sound of a train in the distance. The roar of the Spirit filling God's people. Paul wasn't there. He missed it. But in his weakness, as the least of the apostles, he's been sent to the very ends of the earth to lay brick by brick to build this tabernacle, this temple, that God may dwell with his people because of the sacrifice on the cross offered on that altar. There's no altar in a church, you notice? That's a table. It's not an altar. Because there's only one altar in heaven. And Christ made a perfect sacrifice once and for all. The Jews, the Old Testament, they read the Old Testament like, you know, the book of Hebrews is all about like, well, what are we going to do? We don't have an altar. We can't go make these sacrifices. God commanded us to do all this stuff. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's all about Jesus. He did it all for you. Don't worry. He got it. And this final petition is the climax. Each one of them gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And this one's just a few words. That you may be filled to all the fullness of God. The glory of God in the final doxology. Where is this glory to God given? In the church. We are the glory of God. What a glorious thing. Don't be ashamed. That temple and tabernacle down the street. Artemis of Ephesus. All the power of the kingdoms of the world that make us wonder, what are we doing here in this church? You have 50, 60, 70 people here on a Sunday morning if we're lucky. They got tens and thousands in the big, you know, music festivals. Other places. This is God's glory. And Paul's writing from prison in weakness. And you'll start next uh, chapter 4, verse 1. If you look down the page, we'll turn to this probably in September. So hold this thought. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Love as you've been loved. Because you've been transformed by the love of Christ. And this brings him to his doxological conclusion. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. When the church is filled with the glory of God, when the Shekinah glory, the cloud that comes with the roar of a freight train, the power of a hurricane, the glory of God is known in the church. God can do immeasurably more than we ask or can imagine. We take it for granted, but he brought us from death to life. He brought a dead man alive, Lazarus. And then he brought himself alive, Jesus. And then he brings us to life, the church. Knowing this unknowable love is impossible. It is more than we can ask or imagine. Most days we don't sit around thinking about the unknowable love of God in Christ, do we? We think about what we have to do for work, or our neighbor, or... You know, the frustration we have with our boss or, um, you know, maybe that we're a little short on rent or what our next job will be because I don't like this job so much. We fill our minds with worry and doubt and fear and anxiety. Paul wants us, wants the Spirit of God to work a miracle in us by letting us meditate on the love of God in Christ. 
Don't lose heart, brothers and sisters. God loves you. You are beloved. The eternal God of all creation, who speaks the cosmos into being, can turn stones into bread if he's hungry. But he doesn't. Because he goes hungry for us. That he might suffer with us. He loves you. When you can begin to wrap your mind around that love and the glorious reality of who we are as a body of sinners from all sorts of diverse backgrounds, united, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, united in one church. As we come to the supper, a meal for members of Christ's church, there's the love of God in Christ. Not just a tiny bite of bread and a little bit of wine, but everything it represents. You will never go hungry. You will never go thirsty. In this church, you will never be without a friend. You will never be without shelter. We will care for your body and we will care for your soul. You will never be without pardon. You will never be without love and friendship and affection. And God himself is dwelling here in our midst. Christ at the altar. The table has shown forth his sacrifice on the altar. Let's pray. Merciful God and Heavenly Father, we know that we are weak and you are strong. And we need the strength of your spirit even to receive uh, that word, that miraculous word preached that causes dead bones to live. Grow on us new muscle, new tendons. Grow us together that in our joining, in our being built, we might show love, not hatred. We might show the world the hope of the new creation and invite the world to join us in anticipation of praising and glorifying our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Come, Lord, quickly. Amen.